PBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for the Season 10 premiere episode, Catalina. Uh, in this episode, we heard the very basics, the beginning of the story of how Maria Catalina Palomino was murdered in her apartment. And, of course, we had some foreshadowing of what's to come. And that 15-year-old Jennifer Jeffley was eventually arrested and charged with capital murder for the crime. This week, Mike is on one of his very first big boy vacations, and he's not in the office. And so we have a special guest joining us. Uh, I am joined here in the studio, side by side with me, sitting in a chair where he doesn't normally sit, Mr. Zach Weaver. Yeah, it feels weird over here, but I'm happy to be here. Yep. And then on the computer via Zoom from all the way across the country, her IMDb page is several pages long. She played Becca Barber on TV's You're the Worst. You know her as the voice of Cora, and this week you heard her as the voice of news reporter on our premiere episode, and today she is the voice of Mike, the host of the JV podcast, the one and only, very talented, Miss Janet Barney. Hello, thank you so much for having me. This is a place where any of my show business credits work against me, um, because <laughs> this is a place for a serious conversation about the criminal justice system and its needed reform. So I want everyone to imagine me as a fellow fan. Nothing I've ever done does anything for me here. And that's OK. And I'm just a true crime nerd. And I love the show. And I'm so honored to be a part of this. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really exciting to be here. I'm such a huge fan, as you know. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our stay connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30 second 4G activation or one off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. All right, so now this is going to be fun because you, I, I don't have to do anything. You, from here on out, this is your show. Take it away. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Well, we have a ton of listener questions to get through. Um, I want to quickly say I always find this part, uh, the first follow-up of the first episode of a new season, I always wonder what are the questions going to be like and how many answers can you even give without giving too much away because you may know answers, but you may be planning on answering them in future episodes. So this is going to be very interesting for me to be on the inside of things to see how you handle some of this stuff. Yeah, I'm tr it, it, they're always a little tricky. And even, you know, we, we selected some of the questions and I, I try to select the questions that aren't spoiling what's to come, but, but it is definitely tricky. I'm, I'm hoping to not answer an overwhelming majority of these questions with, <laughs> I'll tell you later. Got it. Got it. And I also want to say uh, big ups 
we could still say that, right? Um, no. People have said that since okay. 2005, I think. Cool, cool. People haven't said it since 2005 is what you mean, and I agree. Um, because I'm always super impressed by the follow-up questions as well. There are a lot of questions that come up that listeners ask that I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, wait a minute. What's up with that? So this is no exception. Um, Zach, what did you think about the beginning of, of the show? What do you think about the season to come? Any uh, anything's pop for you right away? Oh, I am really interested. I mean, this the storytelling you've put forth so far is, is pretty amazing, and I'm, I'm excited to hear what's going on. I do have a couple little questions, I think, that I wasn't sure of. One of which, you know, they talk about Jennifer and her sister, and they talk about him being held back. And and they kind of allude to them missing a lot of school, but I'm not 100% sure where that comes in to play. Uh, yeah, So I'll get into, we're going to get into the details of that uh, as the episodes move along, I think in episode three, so that'll be next week. We get into some of those details in the, the re- what's what's happening here in the first couple episodes of the season is that th- there are a lot of, as I'm sure you're starting to catch on to it, even in the premiere episode, there's a lot of layers to the story. And I had to make the decision in episode one, do I just put all these layers right out there? But there's they're so complex and so deep that I didn't want to just touch on them. I want to, you know, there's going to be an episode about that, that really speaks to Jennifer's background and her state of mind uh, when all of this happened. Uh, the short version that I can tell you now is um, they, the family, the Jeffleys, moved from East Texas then to Tennessee Colony, which happens to be where Ed Eights was imprisoned for 20 years. Uh, and her mom actually worked for the prison system in Tennessee Colony. Um, so she was there. And then um, they had a couple family tragedies, one of which was that her brother got cancer and was going through a lot of cancer treatments and they ended up moving around again to get to a better hospital and through the moves and through helping, you know, it's a single mom trying to work and can't be there all the time. The girls were trying to help, you know, help take care of the brother along with the moves and everything else. And so it just, it put them behind. And then they moved into when they moved to Houston, which was to get closer to a hospital that that they needed to be closer to. They were just they were kind of struggling and behind from their other schooling already, and then the curriculums didn't match up at all when they got into Houston, and so uh, mm. Houston made them repeat the her the eighth grade and her sister Kim had to repeat the ninth grade because they just weren't where they were supposed to be. That actually clears up a lot for me. I didn't I didn't quite get any of that. I just they they mentioned it a couple of times about them being held back and I and I never really could figure out why that was part of the story or how that came about or or why we were even talking about it but that that does help a lot actually clear things up for me. Yeah, for me I I am very nervous. Uh, now I'm glad to have a little more information but because there were so many allusions to the heartache and the tragedy that these girls were already experiencing, um I am a very empathetic person and I'm very emotional and I was I was feeling so sad for them without even knowing why yet. Like, that's how much I was like, oh, no, what is it going to be? So I'm I'm nervous about those layers because it sounds like they really just were put through it before any of this even happened. Yeah. And I can tell you when we it'll be again next week, we'll hear more of this story. And it was one of the most difficult interviews I ever conducted when I flew down to Texas and I met with the family and recorded an interview with her mom, uh, with Jackie Jeffley, who you'll hear a lot from this week, too, on Sunday. And just her telling the story and then the sisters telling their versions of the story you know, from their perspectives was just so 
just tragic and heartbreaking. I'm the same as you. I have a lot of empathy for other people, and I, I, I spent a lot of that interview in tears myself. Now, I, I'm curious. Uh, so, Janet, knowing you were going to be on the follow-up and that you listened to all the shows, uh, I texted you Sunday and said, hey, did you get a chance to listen to the premiere? And you said, yes. And that was it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm curious. That's not true. Oh, well, I said, yes, I start. I always start my Sundays with the, with Truth and Justice, which is true. Right. But no, uh, no feedback. So I'm wondering, what did you think about the episode in general? I thought it was great. Um, I'm tr- I was trying to remember if you put uh, past seasons in as much context as you did, uh, because it was very like, in the beginning, you know, you spent time talking about mm-hmm. sort of what else was going on, what else was going on in crime. You know, you mentioned OJ, you mentioned Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. And, and, and so you really set the scene. And I know you've done that before in past seasons in terms of, yeah, putting things into some kind of chronological context. But I couldn't remember it. Fe- be, it this one felt very rich and it felt very like this is going to be important or, you know what I mean? Like you, that you, that, that it felt important to sort of make sure that you had mapped out what else was happening in the world. Well, first of all, you said there was so much else going on. Right. Who's going to pay attention? I mean, potentially maybe you, we could infer who's going to pay attention to you know, one quote unquote small thing that is the biggest thing in someone else's life when right. there's all of these other things that are making noise in the media and distracting. Yeah. And that was when I, I really wanted to set the scene. I don't know why I haven't done this in seasons past. Um, and as, as I was trying to, you know, for me writing an episode, I'm always trying to, you know, the, the, the honestly, the, the, the cold open is always the hardest part for me to write. I can write the you know the other three acts and everything else just fine but i always have a hard time like how do i come into it and for me when i was going through the newspaper articles from that day which you read one of them um the one about this uh this crime i was reading it and it, it just something struck me as someone who was you know we're close to the same age um you know so we were you know in high school or just getting out of high school at that time and as I was reading, I was like, oh, my God, I remember that. I remember the whole Richard Jewell thing, and I remember the election. And so there was just something about it to me. I thought, I don't know how particularly relevant it's going to be, but I feel like I want to set the scene for anybody that you know is at least 40 years old or so that they can kind of put their minds back there. Like, oh, I remember that. I, and, and, to, and to kind of put yourself into that timing. Because there are a lot of things that we're going to hear. You know, you're going to – the fact that you know, not everybody has cell phones. Hardly anybody has cell phones. That people have pagers. That there's no GPSs in cars. Um, it, and a lot of these. So it, just, it was just to try to put everybody's minds into that space. And it was just something a little different. I'll tell you, Shane didn't like it. Shane, <laughs> Shane, when I sent he it off to Shane for it. scoring, yeah. Well, he didn't say he didn't like it, but Shane definitely said, um, "Are you sure this is what you want to do?" Because I was listening to it to score it. Never a good and sign. I, is that what you're going to wear? A, That's basically what he was saying. Is that what you're going to wear to that party right. that's important to you? <laughs> yeah, he definitely, Shane definitely said, um, you sure that's what you want to do? Because I, I was just, as I started listening, I'm three minutes in and I'm wondering what the hell is going on. Are we talking about, about Richard Jewell? Are we talking about OJ? Um, but I decided to go with it. So um, I, I was going to say, I'm glad you liked it, but you didn't actually no, just I say did that like you it. liked it. I did like it. And I will say furthermore, you say it's important for those of us who can remember that stuff, but it's just as important for people who are younger, who don't necessarily have that context to kind of be thinking about that. I think that's equally as important. And I would say for me, it was actually this on a personal note. You don't have to leave this in. 
But for me, it was kind of a good reminder to hear about the conversations that were happening at large in the presidential election, because a lot of times people oversimplify and go, well, the Democrats are easy on crime and the Republicans are tough on crime and, you know, policies roll out. And if you have this kind of person in office, that means everybody, all the all the people are going to, you know, crime's going to increase because no one's going to feel like they're getting punished, all that kind of stuff. And hearing the the mention of Clinton and really talking about cracking down and and, you know, wanting people to feel safe in their homes and all that kind of stuff, um, that does have a huge impact on the kind of punishment that's issued and the kind, you know, that all that stuff sort of rolls down, I think, to many of the states. And so if we're finding out about a person who may be falsely accused, who may be in prison for, you know, an undue amount of time, I think it's important to know, hey, you know what, just because this just because this side was in office doesn't necessarily mean that like, hey, it's a free for all and people are just, you know, committing crimes because they feel like like you know, all that stuff, I think, is really important uh, in the conversation about crime. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you caught on to that, too, because I specifically picked that ad for Clinton for that reason, because some of that stuff does does play in later. Because I didn't remember that because that's the same as you, you know, you know each party is kind of known for one thing or another. But, you know, kind of forgot that, you know, Clinton was in, in his first term in that situation where, you know, he had he was dealing with the Republican Congress and to try to win the hearts and minds of the American people. He really shifted very, very moderate. And that was his big tough on crime stance that really, you know, drove him through to the to reelection and all of this. So that's that was the temperature of the country at that time was tough on crime, especially drugs. You know, he had appointed that drug czar and all that. Um, and so a lot of that comes into play as we as we move along. I feel very smug. I feel like the kid who just raised their hand like <laughs> pick me. And then I guess the right thing, which was that it is important. Thanks, everybody. Um, should we get into some of these listener questions? I don't want to ignore these great uh, these great people who have these great these great questions that I wouldn't have thought to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. OK. Ashley asked, how long had Catalina lived in that apartment? Could the target have been the previous tenant? Well, she had lived there for about six months from what her, her nephew said. Whether she could be you know, whether there was a, a previous tenant that might have been a target. That's so hard to say. I don't, you know, what you heard there is we're going to definitely get much deeper into this. We're going to profile the scene. We're going to learn more about the crime scene. But you heard kind of a preliminary profile in in my own reconstruction. That's based on the crime scene photos that I have. I'm still waiting on the full set. I have what was used at trial. I'm waiting on the full set from Houston PD. Um, I do have a crime scene video. And there's just a lot more information to piece it together. So the the story I told this week is just my preliminary look at it. But it, it was really important to me because the first thing that jumped out at me when this case was pitched to me was this doesn't add up. It doesn't, the, the story you're going to be hearing over the next couple of weeks doesn't add up to me. And so for me as an investigator, my first step, because that was also something I did a little different this, this time, is we heard about victimology before we heard about the crime. And I've never done that before. But I just really thought it was important for us to understand a little bit about what's going on and who might have committed a crime like this. Before we even hear you know, what the crime is and start getting into the suspects before anybody's mind gets jaded, because that was my step. Once I knew, you know, I know this is the crime, this is the suspect, this is who was arrested, and it didn't make sense to me, of course, my first step was to go through victimology. And, you know, the, the conclusion that I really came to is I, I don't think there was, I don't think she was a target other than, I think it's very likely someone was, and if you go on our website, you can see the, the crime scene photos and what I'm talking about. 
But I think it's very likely that someone was walking down that alley. She's standing there and they see someone standing there with an open patio door and they just decide, hey, let's take her money. And bam, they jump in. And I, I think there may, there may have been no planning whatsoever. Yeah, I, I, I noticed the tall enough to keep you honest fence comment that I thought was th- that actually made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And well, and that's what I went and stood next to it when I was there. And it's, 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 it's weird because it's a privacy fence, right? So it's solid pickets. You can't see through it, but it's only four foot tall, which is, I guess, tall enough that you can't easily hop over, but you certainly still can jump over it. And it doesn't, and you're just standing there. You can still see right over the top of it. Well, I think talking about victimology, I think this is a great question though, whether she was the target or not mm-hmm. because of that, because it looks like you know, during victimology, she has no reason for anybody to want to get her. Right. She And she doesn't have any money. She doesn't have any enemies, so to speak. You know, so I could see why the listener could ask if it could be potentially the, the person that lived there before her. Right. And, you know, that, that, that look at the victimology as we, uh, I can tell you this, the prosecution's theory of the case does not fit whatsoever with my interpretation of the victimology you know that you know and so that that's as far as i'll go with that for now but and and that's why you know it's one as part of the preliminary process is i'm selecting a case and doing our preliminary look at it in that early stage of investigation is does this how does how does what i think could have happened here compare with what the prosecution says and that was like this immediate glaring red flag is like this this absolutely does not connect you know that what i see in the crime scene and their theory of the case does not connect whatsoever. So what you're saying is we're back in Houston and it doesn't make sense? I, I, I just, did you hear me pause when I was yes. intentionally <laughs> trying not to say that doesn't make sense? <laughs> you, uh, yeah, I, I feel that that phrase has been ruined for me as well. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm on the, I'm, I feel like I'm the bad guy if I ever say it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. This is a great question. Great example of a listener who notices something that I wouldn't have caught. Lauren says, you mentioned in the episode that her wallet was stolen, but we have that photo from her wallet of a nun. When was it recovered? Okay, great question. Great catch. So the wallet, I'll I'll say this, the wallet was discovered months after the crime and it was recovered. I have the photo of the wallet because when I went to the clerk's office to, to, to scan it, I actually had to take a VHS uh, uh, a VCR and some equipment to transfer a crime scene video t- into digital format so that I wow. could, that nobody had seen in 20 years because it's a VHS. Uh, and I was going through some of the other um, evidence that was there and I pull out this bag and there's the wallet, which really should be in. And of course I was, you know, rubber glove didn't pick through it or anything, but they, I would think it would be stored in an evidence locker somewhere, but it's actually, it was in the clerk's office, which is probably where it's supposed to be. It just to me, it seemed like it should be somewhere else. Um, and going through the contents, that's where I found the the photo of a nun, which was interesting. There's no other photos in there. There's all kinds of stuff in the wallet. Hmm. Um, but there's one photo, and it's just this little wallet-sized photo of a nun that her nephew Juan has no idea who it is. Got it. Amber asks, was it a quote-unquote bad neighborhood? Any reports of burglaries, robberies, drugs, domestic? I don't know. I, from talking to the family, it didn't feel like a bad neighborhood to them. There, to to kind of put things into context, there's the the Green Arbor apartment complex is pretty big, as I mentioned, and then right across the street is the I think it's called the Sabo Village Apartments, but it's probably twice the size of Green Arbor, and that's where the little alleyway that ran right in front of of uh, Catalina's apartment 
would went right out to the road that crossed over to that other apartment complex. And, and so as far as the neighborhood goes, what you have, you have all, everybody in that neighborhood lives in an apartment. Um, there, there are no, there are no houses around, so it's all rentals. So kind of, a, I, I guess you would say kind of a transient community where people, you know, people don't live always long-term in apartments. There's different people coming in and out all the time. As far as the crime rate there, so where I just literally yesterday got some of the police file that I've been waiting for. And as start as I started to go through those reports, I do I have come across where the lead detective has put in a search uh, to get records of any similar crimes or burglaries in the area. I have not made it in the hundreds of pages of documents yet to where or if he ever gets a return on that where they they explain. So I, I don't really know the answer to that other than just anecdotal from the people that that lived there at the time. To them, it didn't seem like a bad neighborhood. I, I do believe there was a listener comment that said they lived in that area around that time frame, and they said that area was kind of on the edge. They didn't say it was bad, but they mm-hmm. didn't say it was necessarily good either. Could be to me. It did, when I was there now in 2021, it didn't feel like a bad neighborhood. I mean, of course, in the complex itself, now it's there's there's ten foot wrought iron fence all the way around it with a uh, a gate to go through. But just the neighborhood, and I ate lunch right there when I left there. I went around the corner to. Um, some fast food and sat and sat and ate lunch. It, just, it didn't feel at all like a bad neighborhood to me now, but who knows from 96. Right. Uh, okay. Christina asks, who originally brought this case to you? I was curious if it was one of Jennifer's family members. It was not. So the, the case was brought to me by, uh, it, it was submitted through our website by at least two people. Uh, one of whom is longtime listener, Kathy McElhaney. Sure. Um, I'm sure Kathy's listening right now. Thank you, Kathy, for submitting the case. Hi, Kathy. And then also it was submitted by a, um, in, I don't know what you would call Lakeed Drew. I, I, I guess I would call her an advocate. But she is somebody that is an advocate for the case and works with the family. I met, got to meet her when I was in Houston, too. And I believe she had also submitted it. And it may have been, we get so many hundreds of them. It may have, it may have been pitched to us by someone else along the way as well. But it just the way it was formatted or worded or the information was given didn't catch my attention the first time. But it was definitely those two people. And now, of course, you've heard on the, we've heard the family on the podcast, and they're they're working with me too. Yeah, I was that was a, I'm glad that that question got asked because uh, I was wondering if it was an innocence project case because obviously you've had um, involvement on with and without the Texas Innocence Project in some of the Texas cases. Right. We actually had kind of lined up uh, for season 10 another case that was pitched to us from the Innocence Project of Texas, similar to Deb Perringer's, where they were just in the preliminary phases and they wanted us to look at it to make a determination if they should move forward. And as I, the deeper I got, I mean, I got into it for months into it. And then I just came to the conclusion, I don't know what they'll do with it. I didn't come to the conclusion that the person is absolutely guilty. But I came to the conclusion that, in my opinion, is most likely guilty, and I just wasn't going to commit any more resources to it at that point. Yeah, I think you mentioned that in passing on a on a past episode that that you had sort of started going into that, and then thought, I don't think this is the one. Right. Um, Mike, who I'm going to assume is not our Mike, and yes, I am saying our Mike as if I'm a regular member of the show now. Uh, Mike <laughs> asks, how does the family of the victim feel about Jennifer and about your investigation? I was actually surprised, when I, that, number one, that Juan Mendiola 
was willing to talk to me. I mean, I always, every season, I always reach out to family members of the victims. I always want to hear from them. I want to learn more about the victim. Normally, I get, you know, told to piss off or they just will avoid me. You know, the the classic, the reason I travel so much and I don't make phone calls is because of the classic, oh, yeah, I'll talk to you. Just let me, I got to get home and I'll call you right back. And then you never hear from them ever again. In in Juan's case, you know, you actually heard on the podcast my greeting with him. I had just, I I always have like a hidden microphone running all day long just to ca- capture moments like that because I was wondering if anybody thought it was weird that I was recording and I said, "Hang on, let me get recording equipment." That's why because I had a little bitty microphone in my shirt. But yeah, uh, when I part of the interview with him that you haven't heard yet, you'll hear later. Uh, we get into his thoughts on Jennifer and her case. And I, all I can can really say is that Juan only knows about Jennifer what the police and prosecution told him about Jennifer. So they told him that she's guilty. Right. So he believes that. But at the same time, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, that he definitely, there's some doubt in his mind, I think. And, and also, he's an extremely kind and compassionate man, too. But, but we'll be hearing more from Juan as the season progresses. Yeah, he seemed great. I really liked uh, I liked your interview with him a lot. He seemed very thoughtful and uh, he seemed like a, a, a neat guy. Yeah, I, I could see how Juan could have a little doubt just just based on looking at it. I mean, it's a pretty heinous act that happened. Mm-hmm. And for a 15-year-old female to commit it, it just, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like it's totally there. Well, especially if it went down the way I think it went down based on that preliminary, you know, because my theory, and I stand by it at this point, certainly that may change as I get more and more information. But it look, and I'll tell you this: it's very different. My theory is different than the police theory, even initially, uh, or at least as it was presented at trial. But um, I, I, it, all the evidence that you could see, very to me, pretty clearly indicates that someone jumped over that fence and immediately attacked her, and, and that that she, if you were on the website and you could see the diagram of the apartment, you know, and she just, you know, she ran from the patio door and tried to get to the front door to escape, and in the ten seconds it take it took to catch her there, and they hit over the head, and that was and that was it. It just doesn't feel like any juvenile offender. Like to me, that's a that is a violent person that has been violent in the past and has it has no guilt or empathy about committing such acts of violence. It just doesn't fit really with any fifteen year old. Yeah, Lauren asks, "How long did Eva live in that above apartment? Does she have a criminal record? And also, were you able to tape any calls with Jennifer? And will we hear that this season?" And I thought. We had heard Jennifer. I know we heard Kimberly, but to be honest, right. it's true. In fairness, you didn't necessarily like like identify who to whom you were speaking. We sort of had to infer it from the context right. of the conversation. So it's a good question. Yeah, and it was only seventeen seconds you heard. Uh, and, and the the answer is so yes, um, we did. You you did hear from Jennifer. That was her when we were talking about the the running away and and how that happened. The second voice you heard, that was Jennifer, and it was just a short little clip of her. I have already recorded quite a bit with her, and we will be hearing more from her. However, I, I want to point out, at least right now, so interesting, she's been without a lawyer for years during during her post-conviction wow. process. The case was pitched to me months and months ago. When I finally got to it and decided I think this is going to be the one and reached out to her and the family, like literally like a week before that. Jennifer got a new attorney. A new attorney stepped in to to help her, who hopefully we'll meet here on the podcast as we move along. I've been working with him, at least been in communication with with him 
but with the new attorney being on the case, we, he and I are both in a, in a, a race to try to get all of our documents. Um, not against each other, but with each other. As a matter of fact, uh, I got my packet from Houston PD that I told you about a minute ago. Well, and they hadn't sent his yet, so I got mine and sent it to him. And hopefully if he gets stuff before me, he'll send it to me. But in this in this kind of interim time right now where, you know, it, it, as he put it, that you know, I don't know everything about the case yet because I don't have all the documents. And so he has advised Jennifer right now to not talk specifically about her case right now. So, um, and it, it's kind of thrown a little bit of curveballs in, and especially this episode coming in on, uh, here in two days on Sunday, where I really had planned on having Jennifer tell the story. I can't have Jennifer tell the story right now. But yes, you're going to be hearing from her. And the way it sounds to me, once, once, uh, her attorney has a pretty clear picture of everything that's going on and he can advise her better, probably then we'll have Jennifer be able to tell more of her story about the case. As far as the first question goes, Eva, I think, had lived in the apartment for a few years. Uh, from what I've seen so far through some of the documents that are filtering in slowly, is that that was her mother's apartment. And then when her mother moved out, she stayed there. And as far as criminal record, uh, I ran a criminal. Back then, she had a record, and she, st- in that, the, she had one offense. And when I ran current criminal background checks on her, it looks like she still only has one offense, and it's a non-violent, uh, non-violent offense. Um, there's really no, I didn't want to get into what it was, but it had nothing, to, nothing violent, nothing relevant to, uh, what's going on with this case. Gotcha. Makes sense. Dawn asks, where can I see pictures and stuff? Yeah. As I was just saying, you could, everything's on our website. Um, so anytime you hear me referencing documents, photos, any of that, the website is truthandjusticepod.com. And if you go to cases and documents, you can go to the Catalina Palomino, uh, season. And all that stuff will be, it just takes you to a Google Drive and there's a folder for every episode and everything will be found right there. Great. Rhiannon wants to know, what are your current feelings on this being a wrongful conviction? Are you still in open-minded investigation mode or have you seen enough to feel she's definitely innocent? Great question, Rhiannon. Definitely still open-minded. Where, where I'm at right now is, I will say this, I, d- I don't know. And I can say, and this is not just me, you know, BSing, like trying to pretend to be unbiased. I really don't know if she's not guilty. I know that this crime did not go down the way the prosecution presented it as going down. I know that the methods used to build the case were very dishonest and very likely led to a lot of misinformation. Uh, uh, building the case. I'm trying to dance around what we got coming up, but it, it just when I when I look at the prosecution's case and I take the elements that I know are bullshit and I pull them away, there's no case left. Now that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that that Jennifer is innocent or that she's guilty, but I feel very strongly that she very likely is innocent, and I absolutely know that that the way this case was handled was completely improper and not fair, especially for a 15-year-old. Okay, that takes us to Leanne wants to know if Eva and the two men heard someone screaming and immediately went to see what was going on, why did they not see the perpetrator or perpetrators fleeing the scene? That is the best question that anyone has asked, and it is one of the questions that I had that led to me taking this case. Oh. 
we have a situation where, from what you guys know right now, we have we have multiple witnesses, right? We've got Eva, Youngster, KD, and Jennifer. And uh, there's different stories that are that are being told to the police, as you'll you'll hear about more this this weekend. But none of them make sense, and that's the biggest one, you know. So so what it ends up being is you end up with three against one against Jennifer. Is what's going to be happening in, in, in a sense as we move forward here. You know, these three witnesses all say one thing happened. Jennifer says something else happened. Jennifer must be guilty. Hmm. But the problem is those three people are all telling the same story, and the story doesn't make sense. So just to, to, to put that into context, what they're saying is you have Eva, Katie, Youngster, the three guys come out of the apartment, down the stairs, which again, if you go to the website, you can see these photos. And, and I actually took a picture of that view of they would see from the stairs down into the patio. It's right there. They hear the screaming, they holler, she hollers back, or the fake voice comes back, and then Eva takes off and goes to get help. And then Eva says she comes back, Katie and Youngster are still there, and 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 now at this point, Jennifer's there, and so they're outside this whole time, and then the maintenance man goes and jumps inside and 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 checks on her and finds her inside dead. So the story is these two guys were standing outside the patio where there's no possible way for anybody to get out of that unit without going past them, while the murder was occurring, remained there until someone came and found the body inside, never moved, but didn't see who left the apartment. They didn't see anybody fleeing the scene. There's no way that makes sense in any way, shape, or form. And that was one of the biggest reasons why I said, I don't know what happened, but I know that's not what happened. Hmm. You know, Eva's statement where she said that she heard a male pretending to be a female saying, oh, I'm okay. I just fell and hit my head. Mm-hmm. Really was strange to me. I mean, it just didn't. Agreed. It, didn't it sounds like it something from a movie or something. Yeah, like, it really does. Yeah. I mean, it's, right. it's really silly almost. Like, especially if there's this, if it's a loud enough bang and screaming to bring you out of your apartment to see what's happening, mm-hmm. you're just going to say, okay, she fell down. It. Uh, I can't get into too much of it, but it like all these pieces of. It's like someone made a bullshit pie. If that that's my new hashtag is bullshit pie because because all these pieces and elements of BS that everyone is saying get plopped in together to make up the prosecution's theory. And and then of course the theory doesn't make sense because it was made of bullshit. It's bullshit pie hashtag bullshit pie. Interesting. It's number one, I'm never that's eating the- any kind of pie again. <laughs> that's it for me i'm out on pie i love that it's a pie. pie it could have been any number of other things could have been cookies <laughs> could have been stew <laughs> for whatever reason it's a bullshit pie i gotcha i gotcha <laughs> mary asks were eva and jennifer paged by the same person who pages a dancer or a teenager at 7 40 in the morning uh, mary feels it can't be a coincidence good good it was not the same person I don't know at this point. Hopefully, I'll find out more as we as I'm getting more documents in. Who paged Eva? The 7:40 a.m. page seems strange, but keep in mind too, she's a mom, and she didn't have yep. her kid with her, so it could have been dad paging her. We don't. I have no idea. Yeah, that um, one didn't seem that weird to me. Maybe it's because like I'm a weird lady who gets up super early, but 7:40 didn't seem that early to me. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It, well, and. It could be too. No offense to uh, Mary that wrote this, but they, I, th- I think some people may have like an image in their mind of they hear that she's uh, a dancer, 
and maybe category, oh, well, that's just a stripper. Why would a stripper be up early in the morning or whatever? But I mean, that's just her job. That's just what she does to pay her bills. But no, the the, the page to Jennifer was a, and we talk a little bit more about it this week, but it was, it was a family friend. She had run away and it was a family friend of the mom's that was looking for her on behalf of mom to try to help track her down. I feel like pagers, this is, I'm sure, never going to make it in, but for anybody who's watching in the follow-up uh, on Patreon, I feel like pagers, it's such a weird time in technology. There's something that's almost worse about a pager than either you've got your messages at home, you can call and check them, or we have cell phones and you have the information with you at the snap of a, a finger. But the pager in between of like, you get a page, who is it? What could it mean? When am I going to have time to return the page? Who, what, where am I going to, you know, when can I find a phone to call that person? That feels like a really stressful era in technology and communication to me am i crazy no that was a totally stressful time i had a pager about that time what were you six no no i was older than that <laughs> but i did not uh, have a pager and i was definitely older than you well maybe it, maybe it was a little after this but i had a pager at one point and and i had the rule that if my mom paged me i had five minutes to call her back uh-huh. and that is the most stressful five minutes of your life when you're trying to find a phone to call your mom right and you're trying to get out of where it is you're not supposed to be that yes, you are 100 percent. Right you never had a pager janet no, no, I never had a pager. I, w- I, I didn't have anything important enough going on in my life that anybody needed to be able to reach no, me. No right one away. did. None of us did. <laughs> I, did have, <laughs> I did have a pager in 96, and that was part of that whole like setting the scene, the time. But yeah, I had one. I don't, you know, I don't remember why I had it. Remember, everybody would have them, uh, and, and they, would, they would clip them in their, and instead of their belt, they would put them in their pocket with like the clip on the outside. Yep. Surely you at least knew people wearing their Definitely pagers around did. like that. Definitely did. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and there's maybe people that have never had one or didn't, or don't remember how it worked, but yeah. So the way it would work is you would, you would call, you know, whatever my pager number was, you'd call that phone number and it would go to like a service and it would say, boop, leave your phone number, your callback number after the tone, you'd punch in your callback number and hit pound and then hang up. And then it would send to me, I'd get a page and all it would be, would be that phone number. And then I'd go have to have, find a phone and call it. So yeah, different time, and it was it was like a blip in history too. It seemed like, like 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 yeah. pagers came in for like a year, and then like they got taken over by cell phones, and they never came back. You're right. It was like a stopgap. Like we finished, we figured out how to do just this. Oh wait, no, we figured out everything else. Just no, we, right? You don't need that anymore. <laughs> exactly how it was. <laughs> uh, so you didn't get to experience any of the because then we got clever with it. And we started figuring out how to send like messages through the pager. You know, like if you put. Z- what was it like, like zero, zero, one, zero one. eight? You were telling someone boob. Yeah, that's yes. the one. That's <laughs> <laughs> that is an important message. Thank God right. you figured Are you out put how to nine one one at the end for an emergency. Yeah, nine one one meant emergency call now. Yeah, except everyone just did that, right? I mean, young people were yeah, like, everybody. "No, I want, I, I want to call back right now." Nine one one, and it was like, right. "What are you eating later?" <laughs> Such a weird, weird time. But yeah, so uh, back to the question. Yeah, that was uh, that that was a family friend looking for Jennifer, kind of on the behalf of mom, because because uh, we'll, what we'll learn is mom didn't have a phone in her apartment either. So Eva didn't have a phone. Mom didn't have a phone. Uh, but Jennifer had this pager. So this 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 person reached out to her on the pager to try to track her down. Gotcha. Lynn asks, do you think the victim was outside or inside her unit when first threatened? Seems she could have been the person that knocked the screen door off its track. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, it's a really good question. And as a matter of fact, this is what I was kind of alluding to earlier, where I've, I've seen in the initial reports by police, 
that their theory is that um, that Catalina was inside of her apartment and then saw somebody over the come over the patio and that they broke into the patio door and then cornered her by her, which which in my mind, especially if you look at the crime scene photos, is preposterous that that's what happened, namely because her slipper is on the patio and the other slipper is inside. So it, it seems pretty obvious that she came out of her slippers as she was running away. Uh, good question. As far as the screen, could it have been Catalina that broke the screen? It could be if it was broken in, but mm. it was broken out. Oh, okay. Um, at least in my mind, as I'm picturing what that person was asking, I'm imagining her kind of doing something I've done drunk at parties on multiple occasions, which is running into a closed screen door. Um, so like it, where it would break in because she's just fleeing in a panic. But no, it was it was ripped out. And I think part of the police conclusion that she was inside was that the there there were signs of damage on the latch of the screen door. Um, so I think they thought the person the people broke in through the screen. But I think it's possible that number one, that damage is already there. We've all had those mm. you know cheap screen doors and know how what what fantastic security the locks are on those things. But but also I think it's possible. I think probably what happened is she's on the patio. They're jumping over. She flees in, grabs the tries to close the screen behind her. As and there's a struggle there, and it, gets, it just gets grabbed and and ripped off. Is is what I think happened based on what I know now. I could very well see that, but I could also see it happening with her grabbing it. She's trying to just close it behind her, right, and then pulls it backwards. But the same process is happening, is mm-hmm. what you explained. Wait, you're saying she would close it behind her? She would try to close the screen door behind her. You know, as if you're a, running as a through, defensive you're, move. you're running away from somebody, and you try to, you're you're grabbing it, pulling it back, which would rip it off backwards. Gotcha. Open. I have a quick question. We're getting towards the end, but um, I this is probably something you can't answer. But in hearing the description of Catalina and, you know, Juan talking about her, um, I mean, this is literally a woman who we have been told has only the best intentions for others, has a photograph of a nun in her wallet. Is this a situation where it's a, a, a defenseless, sweet, wonderful older woman who people want justice immediately and there's a sense of you know, well, the police have to, they care about this more. Of course, they should care about everything equally. But because mm-hmm. of who the victim is, do you think that there is a, a feeling of pressure to pin someone right away? I, I, I honestly don't um, think that's it. I, especially because I think that this particular police department at that particular time, I think was pretty racially insensitive. Mm. Um, and the fact that, and that's just my own opinion on it, but that the fact that she was a Hispanic woman certainly wouldn't have, and she didn't have a bunch of family beating down their doors. You know, there's nothing that would make it rise up to be a more important case. I think it has more to do with some of that racial insensitivity, how it got closed. And then also the fact that um, they just they had such a high crime rate and, and, and so many homicides to clear that it, it's almost like like Baltimore, where they're just clear case, clear, clear the case, clear the case, clear the case. And and what you'll see is this is is our story moves along is they literally it was like they found the first person that they thought maybe could have done it and then whether intentionally or intentionally just found well this was an easy person to put this on and they put it on them and and you'll see i mean that there, there's a horrible set of circumstances at the end of at, at the end of this besides what happened to jennifer jeffley but but as far as the justice for catalina palomino you'll see very clearly that no they didn't want justice for her because they never got it even if jennifer's guilty in the way they say she is 
Catalina still never got justice. Okay, what that tells me is that this season we can look forward to some classic Bob Ruff, rageful, righteous indignation, which I enjoy very much and I get a real <laughs> thrill out of because I feel that rage. I'm angry right now just based on only what you just said about the police. I'm already very angry. So this is going to be a good season for how dare they. I can feel it coming. Oh, yeah. It's, it's funny you said that because I just recorded this week's main episode and found myself getting enraged as I was you know, reading it and recording it. And in that moment, I thought, God, I almost mi-, like I haven't because of what we've been doing for season nine, which I've loved and we've taken a true crime binge, but I've gotten out of this like real work helping real people. And and there was there was definitely that rage is already building in me. And as much as I don't like to feel rage. The fact that I was feeling a strong emotion about what we were doing, like, is there, there was definitely this weird feeling of, ah, I'm back. Chelsea asks, how the hell would Jennifer get accused of this if she is standing at the scene of the crime when people come for help? She would have to be covered in blood and possibly even scratch marks. Well, that is, I think, the perfect question to end on because I do have an answer for you, but the answer is going to come on Sunday. So in Sunday's episode, we're going to learn how Jennifer became a suspect and what led to her arrest. All that's coming in episode two, Sunday morning. That felt like the end of the and show. What happened? It did. But I got. But I have a very important. Listen, I have a very important, and this comes from my heart, not just where it's written right here. From my heart, what if that's not enough, Bob Ruff, for me? Bob, okay. is there something else I can listen to? Like True Crime Binge. Like, who would be on that show this week if I asked, which I'm asking, because I want to know. You know, Janet, I'm glad you asked. So for this week's episode of True Crime Binge, which has dropped two days ago, we had the amazing and talented Christine Schieffer, who is one of the hosts of the And That's Why We Drink podcast. We talk about a really cool case. Um, it's uh, kind of a triumphant story of Miriam Rodriguez who her daughter was kidnapped and murdered by a drug cartel. And when she thought the police weren't doing enough, she took matters into her own hands and managed to capture 10 members of a drug cartel. Really cool story. Um, Again, triumphant and tragic all at the same time. And if you're looking for something between this coming Sunday's episode and next week's follow-up, next week, Nick from True Crime Garage is going to be on True Crime Binge. And we are digging even deeper into the Delphi murders. Oh, man, that. Oh, yeah. You're listen. When you say that that case obsesses you and that it haunts you, I guarantee you most of your listeners are nodding in agreement because that one is really tough. And I totally understand why people have reached out to you and said, you know, can you put your spin on this? Can you do anything about it? It is really just I'm so excited to hear more from you and Nick about it. Well, thank you so much again, Janet, for joining us and for giving me the opportunity for the shameless plug for True Crime Binge, which I hope you all go listen to, download, rate, and review. Uh, Zach, thanks for joining me. Thank you, buddy. And Janet, thank you again so much for playing Mike this week. You did a fantastic job, and we'd love to have you back any other time one of these two knuckleheads aren't here. I'm happy to do it, and I know that I could never fill Mike's shoes, but I'm glad to uh, lend a hand and be a part of this as a a super fan. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and make sure you tune in to Episode 2 this Sunday.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>